Hope you were with us yesterday, but if not, this is your first time. Welcome to V. We had an extraordinary series of conversations yesterday, and we are incredibly grateful for all the good folks who showed up to be with us. I uh, expect if you're tuning in, you're hoping for a lot more of that today, and I think that's what's on offer. So you're not going to want to hear from me uh, for very long, but I do want to tell you a couple quick pieces of housekeeping. One is chances are you're looking in the chat box while you're listening to me. Go ahead, and especially if you didn't yesterday, no one bites. I can testify to that. Go ahead and use the chat. Make sure you're in conversation with one another. It's going to enrich the whole experience for all of us. What you have to offer is unique and different from anybody else. So we appreciate you and really hope you're feeling comfortable about participating. We were surprised and delighted to see over 1,500 folks with us yesterday, an awful lot of them participating in the chat, but then also on Twitter and other social media. So if you want to do that, if you're one of those people who, God bless you, can manage two screens, uh, one of the things I can tell you is uh, we're using a couple hashtags to organize ourselves. The primary one is hashtag ComNetworkV, and I'm a lousy speller, so bear with me. It's C-O-M-N-E-T-W-O-R-K, the letter V, right? Or uh, the hashtag comms for good, which is where the network exists across the year. So encourage you, please do go ahead and uh, avail yourselves of that. Some wonderful conversations unfolding on social and in the chat. Another thing that we do or have been doing since we found ourselves in these incredibly turbulent and unsettling times is we've been borrowing an idea uh, when we gather. Uh, it's called the two-word check-in. And this is an idea that we borrowed from Professor Brene Brown uh, down at the University of Houston. If you're familiar with her work, she's just extraordinary and a, a huge teacher to all of us here at Network HQ. Uh, and so what she does is this two-word check-in. So if you would, just now in the chat, go ahead and put in your name, where you're coming in from, and then two words. How are you doing right now? And just be honest. Listen, for me, uh, after yesterday, a little less nervous and incredibly excited for today. That's more than two words. So I guess I would say relaxed and thrilled or excited. That's three. But suffice to say, put those into the chat. And I've got you all lit up back here. So I'll be checking in with you in just a quick minute. Um, you have a couple of wonderful choices in front of you. You're watching me because you probably already made one. One, we're going to focus on voting. And just off on the in the control room to my right, I can see all the great folks you're going to be chatting with. Eric's going to lead an incredible conversation. But if you're waiting for Soledad O'Brien and the conversation she had with uh, Sochi and Miss Miriam, you're going to be in for a real treat as well. The great news is you don't have to miss anything. We are recording everything that we're doing. And if you give us about 24 hours, you'll find it up online. So stick with what you got. You made an excellent choice, I promise you. And with that, let me go ahead and let's get into the day. And I'll see you back again a little bit later on. Be well. Thanks, everybody. Be good to each other. I'm Soledad O'Brien and welcome to our conversation today. Uh, back in 2019, Atlanta's mayor, uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, announced that the city was going to close the Atlanta City Detention Center uh, and launch in its place a community-led task force to reimagine the space. Uh, that center, by the way, was built in 1996 as kind of an extra jail for the Summer Olympics. There are two women among many who made this happen, turned what was a very bold idea, and maybe in some people's minds, an impossible idea into a reality. They are Marilyn Wynn and Sochi Bervera. And I wanted to have an opportunity today to have them deconstruct 
how they got there, how this happened, and what was the role of communication and messaging and who was around the table in turning what was a, an idea into a success. So I'm going to start by reading their biographies, very short, because we're going to ask them actually to talk a lot more about their backgrounds, and then we'll go right into our deep dive about strategy and communication. Marilyn Wynn is the co-founder and executive director of Women on the Rise Georgia. She initiated the Georgia campaign to ban the box. And as a result of this work, Atlanta made history by being the first city in the South to ban the box on its employment applications to end employment discrimination against people who had prior convictions in Georgia. We're going to talk about how that work is part of what we're talking about today with the Atlanta uh, Detention Center. Uh, Sochi Bervera is the director of the Racial Justice Action Center, a vibrant multiracial organizing and training institute building the grassroots leadership and powering of low-income uh, communities of color to win political and social transformation in Georgia. She has 15 years plus of experience in grassroots organizing, media policy, advocacy, and training and technical experience focused primarily on ending criminalization in Black, Latino, and LGBTQ communities. So that's a blurb uh, on two women who have lived a lifetime and done far more than I'm able to describe in a quick paragraph. So welcome, Sochi. Welcome, Marilyn. And, uh, and let's get to our conversation. All right. Thank you. Thanks Marilyn. for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's truly my pleasure. Uh, Marilyn, I'm going to start with you because I want, and then, and Sochi, then I, right after that, I want you to hop in as well. Start with the backstory and your own backgrounds. Are you activists? Are you organizers? Like, how would you describe yourselves before this issue even became a reality? And Marilyn, you can start. Okay. Before this issue came a reality, actually, I'm from incarcerated born and raised right here in, in the city of Atlanta. I remember um, when the city created its homeless population. Then we were granted the opportunity to host the Olympics. Um, then that's when the jail came about. The jail came about um, to hide the homeless from the people coming to visit the Olympics. And since that, the jail, since that time, the jail has been housing primarily our folks in low income and depressed and oppressed neighborhoods. Um, me being from incarcerated, I've had my days there as well. But I've always, always wanted to close it because I always felt and not just felt, but know from experience that once you're arrested, you have a life, it's just like a life sentence of no, you can't do this. No, you can't do that. And uh, so it has always been in my spirit and one of my passions before I knew anything about organizing or being a director of any building or organization or any of that thing. So it's, it's always been there for me to close that jail because I saw the devastation that it did, not just to me and my life, but to the community that I live in and the community that I serve today. Sochi? Um, yes. Um, so I am, um, you said, are we organizers? I'm an organizer. I consider myself a community organizer. I've been that for several decades. I've worked in California and New York and Louisiana um, before coming to Georgia. Um, started out in Mexico City and 
Um, and, and so I have done a lot of work across the country. And when I came to Georgia and met incredible uh, people like Ms. Marilyn, um, was really when the idea was born for the Racial Justice Action Center. And the idea really was just to incubate and support leadership of communities to organize inside their communities and then across communities. Like, can we organize um, with communities of people where we haven't always historically worked together? In fact, maybe we've been pitted against each other. Mm. And can we come together and effectuate real change? Um, and, and we always had a focus on criminalization or what people call criminal justice reform, what we often just think of as our system for public safety and wellness. And a real idea that what we've had for 400 years really, but certainly in Atlanta since 1996, is a, a punitive system, a system that has not really ever provided safety and wellness for a large majority of the community. And how can we move away from that kind of a system um, into one that actually provides the supports and services that people need to thrive. When I read articles about the um, closure of the detention center, um, they all start with, after a two-year fight or after a two-year battle, I, I, I can tell because you're both laughing that this is a good question because um, it sounded like a very short timeline. And I'm curious, when did this very focused strategy begin? When would you put the start of the the ending of this, if you will? Why don't you start, Sochi? Okay. Um, I would say, oh, I would actually say this issue started about, you know, 10 years ago, or as, as Ms. Marilyn says, you know, maybe even before then, but I'll bring it to 10 years ago. And I'll say 10 years ago, um, when there began to be a lot of organizing in the city of Atlanta around policing in particular. And when Women on the Rise as a project of the Racial Justice Action Center started up, and we began working with the Solutions Not Punishment Collaborative, we were focused on policing because we really saw the cost of um, of the kind of way that Atlanta does policing. We saw the cost of over-policing, of an over-investment or a bloating um, of what we sort of say as cops, courts, and jails, and a systematic under-investment in or divestment from mental health services, education, health care, you know, the things that we know. Um, if you ask anybody in any neighborhood, what keeps you safe? What makes you feel safe? What makes your grandchildren feel safe? What makes your grandma feel safe? Those are the things that come up instead of not cop cars, not more jail beds. So we began really thinking about policing. Um, and, and when we began eight years ago, um, I think that that was really the road we were on. And it wasn't Ms. Marilyn, as she says, always had her eye on that city jail. Um, for many of us, as we began down the pathway of changing some, we got laws repealed, we initiated a pre-arrest diversion initiative to give officers an alternative to jail. But as we did that, we began to look at this building. It is 470,000 square feet. It sits in the heart of downtown Atlanta. It is a behemoth. And they spend $32.5 million every year to run a jail that houses people for nothing more than violating a city ordinance or a traffic law. And, and that to me, you know, at some point we said, if as community, we know that we need to have the city put their money where their mouth is, 
Uh, criminal justice reform is great as an idea, but at some point it is about the resources. And Ms. Marilyn led the charge of saying, we want that building, we want that $32.5 million, um, and we wanna change the way Atlanta thinks about safety and wellness. So Marilyn, what did, and I feel like I just should start calling you Ms. Marilyn because clearly <laughs> that's what you're called, Ms. Marilyn. Um, so then when, when you hear the, the focus, um, you know, that you put your laser-like focus on that, what does that mean exactly? Like, how, how would you say that that went from being a one day this detention center needs to go to this is now front and center on my plate to strategize around literally bringing it down. Um, as Sochu just said, you know, it took a lot of what we were calling back then low hanging fruit, where we saw opportunities to change legislation, repeal city ordinances, and actually we were calling it starving the beast. But when, let me back up a little bit before we, when we first started talking about it, it wasn't a thing to talk about during that time. It was a thing that uh, didn't sound like something that would happen or could happen uh, for someone to talk about closing a jail. That sounded like something from another planet, basically. Uh, but uh, we took advantage of the low-hanging fruit that uh, along with Solutions Not Punishment uh, working, first of all, we did ban the box and that was um, um, asking employers to remove that box off applications that um, uh, before a person, you know, can get an interview. Uh, and that it, everything we did was basically uh, diverting people from the jail. And as we as we moved along the cycle, uh, every everything we did. So we starved the beast and um, it was time at this time to launch that campaign. Uh, and, and not just us, I just want to add that um, even uh, uh, Project South uh, was, we was working along with Project South, GLAR, and uh, the mayor, and when uh, I, I said a person in the White House, when the person in the White House decided that he wanted to separate families, our mayor stepped in and ended the ICE contracts with the city of Atlanta, which was a great, a huge uh, win for us as well. Uh, and then after that, we launched the Close to Jail campaign. And like Socho said, did, I mean, no, 92% of that jail population was people of color, 92%. And so I wanna reiterate what I think you're saying, which is there are a lot of other people involved. I, I know these things don't happen yes. because yes. two committed women decided yeah. to make yeah. it happen of that course. you are often speaking about this, but I, I yeah. it would be a mistake to, to not recognize all the other people who had yes. a hand in big ways and small in bringing yes. about this change. Um, yes. So the launching of the campaign, you guys have a had have a hashtag, the hashtag close the jail ATL. And I'm yes. always curious, do these things, as we shift into the communication part of this conversation, do they have to start with a hashtag? I mean, clearly they're starting with an idea and a concept and a strategy, but the, the hashtag to me, was not unimportant, was it, Soshi? I would say um, the hashtag becomes very important and the messaging becomes 
really important. Um, but I would say, I think, especially in kind of the organizing moment that we're in, that it's very important that people kind of see all of that organizing that happened beforehand and all of those people who'd come together to talk about the issue and all the folks who've been locked up in that jail for up two weeks, you know, two months, up to six months, you could be in that jail for spitting on the sidewalk or for jaywalking or for having an open container. And, um, and so we needed the to, to be grounded in the actual um, people and in the deep philosophy. I mean, our, the other part of our hashtag is communities over cages. And I would say that's the that's actually what we're saying. We're saying communities over cages. We're saying healthcare, not handcuffs. We're saying services, not sentences. And those things, yes, the hashtag then becomes, I think, powerful because it encapsulates a larger um, a larger idea that actually speaks to a lot of people. There are a lot of people who, when when offered those choices, we sometimes are, feel like we used to walk into neighborhood um, planning unit meetings, you know, and, and the first thing out of people's mouth would be, you know, I don't feel safe or there's people walking around with drug issues. We need more police. We need more police. Where are the police? And it would take us about 10 minutes to say, have the police in the jail historically actually helped this problem at all? How many years have we been doing that very same thing? What if we did something else? What if we diverted people out of jail and brought them health services or mental health services to where they were? What if we actually looked at housing as a critical issue for people? You know, would that and it, and within ten minutes, um, the the mood would shift, and they would say, "You're right. Close the jail. Close the jail. Close the jail." And that is the power, I think, of a message that holds inside of it. We are searching for shared safety and wellness. That's what that brings us together. Um, and the old solutions that have been offered, I think there's actually a lot of understanding of the costs of them and, and how they're broken. And so our communities over cages and close the jail ATL as messaging really just give life to, um, vibrancy to an alternative that I think can call to people. Hmm, interesting, you know, and I, I think what you're also saying in Maryland, I'd like you to hop in on this part. You also have to listen to people, right? Because there there are problems and just telling people what you're gonna do without listening to what their actual issues are, to me seems like it would be a, a, a big challenge. Uh, so Marilyn, talk to me, because you kind of referred to it and you said, um, you know, that that it seemed too big, you know, that, that I'm sure people thought like, well, there's a lot you yeah. can do, but closing I mean, the closing the jail is just too much. So what kinds of conversations did you start having in the community and, and who had to be in those conversations? How did you think about that? Okay, the conversations we start having in the community, just like Social said, we talked about alternatives. Okay, uh, for instance, I'm formerly incarcerated. So yeah, I can, I break in your car, I can go to jail, but I'm not gonna die in jail. I'm gonna come back and do the same thing. No one gets to the root of the problem of what why people are doing what they do. So that's why we says uh, solutions and not punishment. Healthcare, not handcuffs. We need people to understand that jail does not, you cannot uh, jail away a problem. You got to solve the problem of the person, then you can solve the problem of what the, the, the of their actions. So uh, we, and who we brought to the rooms to have these conversations were people that have been impacted by the system, why they did what they did. And now that they got the services that they needed, they no longer do those things. So mm -hmm. that's how, you know, we talked about who's in the jail 
and why they're there. And people actually didn't know that people were sitting in jail for six months to a year for traffic violations or uh, spitting on the sidewalk, jaywalking and all of those things. And they're not crimes, they're city ordinances that was violated. People just didn't know that. They thought jail, jail, jail was where people go regardless. But when they realized that they could actually unnoticeably walk across the street and the light is red, that they could go to jail. Or they can spit on the sidewalk and they could go to jail. So we had to do a lot of educating of communities and we did it through town hall meetings and we did it through MPU meetings, uh, their monthly meetings. So we had to answer, be able to answer questions for people, well, where would this person go? If this person did this, he did that. And though people go, they get services. Once they get services, then um, the, 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 the problems are resolved. It sounds like you're saying God is in the details when people in the community who care about their community want to understand, you know, before yes. I pick X, I need to understand this issue over here. So do you, yeah. you, you, so she said something interesting earlier and you talked about communities that are frequently pitted against each other. Um, so how did you think about the voices that you were going to center in this conversation? Uh, because I think that's a flaw that a lot of, even, even uh, organizers who've been at it for a minute often, you know, don't run around or can't figure out how to get everybody who's a stakeholder involved. And then you start seeing a kind of an, an infighting and a collapsing from the middle. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I think from the beginning, one of the things that was so, um, we were, we were very excited about with this campaign when we did officially launch it, when we took on and looked at it. We are, I always tell the story because I do remember when Ms. Marilyn was like, now's the time. It's time, you know, we've been talking about it for years. We've been doing this work. Now's the time. And I was like seized with panic because I do know what a big deal it is. And I know what it is to, you know, there's one thing to change some laws. There's, it's another thing to um, look at a whole institution where there's a lot of self-interest in that institution, where you're talking about people's jobs and you're talking about where a city has invested millions for years. And so, um, you know, but when we looked at it, we thought, look at all the people we can bring together. We had already been working in terms of trans and queer community and um, formerly incarcerated women, many or most of whom had been cis and straight up. And we had been working across those differences locally to talk about policing and police harassment. And then we had this opportunity to say, we also here in this jail, there, we always said there were two sides to the jail, what we call the city side, which is where people sat for those city ordinance violations um, and traffic violations, as Marilyn said, 92% black. Um, on the other side of the jail was where they held the, the ICE detainees. So they had a contract with the federal government and they detained immigrant families. And, um, and that was a sort of hidden fact that brought money into the city every year. Um, and that, that uh, immigrant justice organizers had been raising the issue of, had done a study around conditions there um, and said, does the city of Atlanta that calls itself a welcoming city want to be complicit in an immigration system that we can look around right now and say is, is horrifically separating families, is, um, causing great damage in, in many immigrant communities. And so we got to partner along those many different lines um, to bring together the organizations and the individuals um, who'd been detained for different reasons to talk to one another and to share stories and to see commonalities. Um, this jail, this building had 
both harmed all our communities in different ways. And then the kind of exciting place where we were able to engage lots of stakeholders was in the community engagement process of what this building should become. When we started saying, we don't just wanna close it down. We envision a center for wellness and freedom, um, which the mayor has called a center for equity. And so we always call it center for wellness, equity, and freedom. We imagine a facility um, that can actually repair the harm. And that should be designed and envisioned by the people who've been most harmed by the jail so far. And when we started to do that, we could really bring communities together, the neighborhood, people who've been inside on either side of the facility, then business owners in the neighborhood, then the neighborhood planning units, everyone who has an interest in, in what would make our communities better, more safe, more well, um, could come together with voices that directly impacted at the center and really dream, dream big about what we could do. Marilyn, I'm curious about getting the messaging, which clearly was working in terms of internally to the communities, getting it out uh, to the media. Um, uh, I don't need to tell all of you, and I know this well, uh, that people who are incarcerated are not sympathetic characters. Very few reporters want to run out the door and be like, I want to bring humanity to people who are incarcerated. It's usually the opposite, right? Who was the yes. victim of said crime and let me elevate their story. Um, so you have a challenge in front of you in how yes. to get the narrative to, to be one that was that you wanted. Um, how big of a problem was this for you guys? And, and how did you think about solving it, Marilyn? Well, the problem was, I mean, I, I don't see it as a huge problem because by the time the media got uh, got wind of the close to jail and repurposed the building into a wellness equity and freedom center, the messaging had already hit the population. The communities was on board, the mayor was on board, and basically everybody that we needed were on board. Uh, they did talk about, uh, I think, I, I forgot the word they used, but they talked about people being arrested and now they want to close down a jail. Where are the criminals going or something of that nature? But it didn't, it didn't harm us, nor did it go anywhere because the people in the community had already formed a, uh, I, I want to say, well, formed a, a band. They had banded with the, the hashtag community over cages, closed to jail ATL. And I think that community peace that is over the cages is really what resonate with folks. And that's what they want is a community. So it didn't, you know, and of course, a few people are gonna go in the way of the uh, media is going, but the majority went in the way that we were uh, working. So that, it, it, you know, so yeah, so that was, um, how how we were able to move past the media without all the naked naked negative publicity along with people in their personal stories everybody's story is unique and i'm willing in, in every community that we were in which of those communities that the police were arresting folks in there's somebody family member if it's not them have been impacted by that jail that are still going to jail, that are still doing the same thing, but they see now an alternative and a way to solve their family member or their problem by having this jail closed and repurposed into that wellness, equity, and freedom center so people can now get support. 
and not go to jail and be thrown back to the street the way they went in or thrown back worse than what they went in. So messaging and the narrative can be it's, successful, yeah. but if the work has been done underneath it ahead of time. Yes. Um, yes. So tell me what went wrong and tell me what went right. I know nobody ever wants to talk about what went wrong, but I think it's important. What 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 just did not go the way you thought it was going to go, but but then also what did go really well? well that's a great question. Um, I mean, I would say that one of the things that has been a big challenge or what went wrong has been more recently. So what a lot of people actually think that the jail has closed. Oh, and right. unfortunately, we're here to say the jail has not yet closed. And while we have the commitment from the mayor and the administration, um, it, the, it, the situation drags on. There was a moment during the pandemic when there was maybe five to 10 people in the jail every night. And yet the budget proposal came out for fiscal year 2021, which is the July to June, um, for $18 million to be spent on the facility. That, had, that was very wrong. <laughs> um, we had been working so hard for a year with the administration, with this task force. We, we drafted that legislation that the mayor signed. We worked with the council to have it passed um, to create this task force that would engage much larger parts of the community um, in on this process. And we'd been, oh, we'd been meeting diligently and we had all the recommendations. Um, and then we saw this budget and, um, you know, and, and we're like, that was not what we expected. We expected this facility to be closed by July 1st. And so, so I think there's lessons in it. You know, I think some of it would say the world in 2020, as everyone acknowledges, has really gone through a lot of upheavals. Um, and so we couldn't foresee the pandemic. We, we couldn't, we could probably have foreseen the uprisings that have taken place after the killings of George Floyd and, um, and Rayshard Brooks here locally, probably, but we didn't know when those were gonna happen. It was inevitable because police violence is um, happening on such a regular basis, but who knew um, in this, Kind of way that it would take place and so it has um just meant that there's a lot of a lot of things pulling attention um from the powers that be to actually implement um some of the things that they've committed to so i think that one of the things we've learned from it has been persistence you know as organizers um like you said just like there's sort of the myth of the one or two people who make something happen when actually it's a whole army and community of people who do that just like that there's not just a good idea that then wins the day there's campaigning um there's having to draft laws there's having to be there at city council there's having to engage community and then there's just having to stick it out for the long haul because um, the truth is nobody has a stake like the people impacted in in what happened so what we say sometimes to the administration right now is even when they say we're working on it we're trying to get all the pieces together to close it we say while you are working you know handling paperwork people are suffering because they're going into that jail and sitting there when you have already agreed when we have agreed as a community that we don't want people to go to jail for those things um, and so in that way, there's this disconnect between the sense of urgency from communities that are hurting and being harmed um, and want to start a process of healing, you know, and, and administrators and, and bureaucrats or elected officials who um, have, you know, lots of, lots of other um, considerations and maybe don't feel the impact so deeply. Um, so I would say that's one of the things that, that has gone not as planned and that we are developing strategy for on the daily basis to address. And how about what worked? Oh, 
Um, Biggest thing, most important, yeah. most impressive thing to you that, that worked well. Wow. Um, I think what worked is to bring people together who are impacted, centering voices and, and lives of people who have um, had experience with our criminal legal system and building um, uh, an, an alliance that crosses community um, to really um, organize for something visionary. So to both understand what we're opposed to and to recognize what's hurt our communities and families, but to really organize actually around a different vision that, that we believe that there could be a system of safety and wellness that doesn't trade the lives of some for the safety and comfort of others, that we could have a system that actually meets people's needs and, um, and, and isn't built on kind of the myths and distortions that our current system um, has been so, so built on. Um, I think that was what, that's I think our greatest success in this campaign. Yeah. Marilyn, talk to me about how you sell something that relies on a lot of policy. And I'm thinking, hearkening to every time I have to do a story on the Hatch Act, which really, even the people who care about the Hatch Act, which is not that many people, uh, don't even know what it is and couldn't describe it, right? So you feel like whenever I have to do it, I'm, I'm slamming my head into a wall. People's eyes are rolling back in their head and I'm sure they're all walking away from my show and turning off the television because sometimes policy sucks people under in its minutia if it's not, you know, if, it, if it's not explained right. I know in newsrooms, whenever I had to tell a story about racial justice, no one in the newsroom, I mean, honestly, it was not a selling point. It's a bigger selling point today. But 10 years ago, 12 years ago, when I started doing a series called Black in America, it really wasn't. And I knew that if I pitched it as a money issue, like, look at the money behind it, people would be like, oh, that interests me. But selling racial justice was, you know, there were like three people who cared and nobody else cared. How did you think about how to position things in a way that both the communities would care about, that speaking to the media they would care about. Like, talk to me about some specific things that you did um, where you navigated that. Because as a journalist, that's actually been very, you know, proposing stories. That's That's been hard for me. Okay. Well, it wasn't a me, it was a we. And um, we uh, actually, um, we talked about money, money saved, money wasted, uh, and money that can be reallocated back into the community services that we wanted for people to get those services instead of putting money into the jail and people being thrown back to the city or thrown back to the street the way they went in or worse than they went in when that money could be reallocated into community services housing jobs health care and all those things so that kind of caught people's ear as well as talking about uh, alternatives for their family members, alternatives for themselves, something that is related, that they can relate to and that they need, something that is a greater need than that building, a greater need for uh, just human rights and be, be able to be uh, a human in regardless of what you've done, a past is the past. And these are not crimes, these are city ordinances. So in, in, and that's how we framed it and were able to get catch people and catch the city as well. Um, we was talking one not too long ago and about the $18 million that was in the budget for this year for ACDC. 
we could take that $18 million and take uh, for the people that are in the jail right now and live in uh, uh, the Ritz-Carlton for a month <laughs> instead of putting, I mean, I'm seriously. No, I know. Uh, that's, why, that's, money, that's why I'm laughing because I know you're dead serious. It's 21 people in the jail and you're going to put $18 million into a skeleton jail. So that those are the things that that we talk about that catches people the needs of the, the community. It's interesting right. because like money often is that thing because people can really relate to wasted yeah. money, money that could be spent better, uh, yes. things like that. Um, so yeah. she, let me talk to you about the role of nonprofits. Um, how did you think about leveraging their support? What did you hit up against? And I certainly have, I think it's changing, but I've, I've worked with some nonprofits where they don't want to step into a hot button issue, right? Like they want to give backpacks to small children before school. Like that's a really comfortable, safe space. Um, letting people out of a jail starts getting a little challenging. How did you think about it? I think that's exactly right. I mean, what's been um, amazing in, over the last five years is how um, sort of, you know, public dialogue has shifted around these issues. And while that hasn't made all of the difference, it certainly has impacted. So, you know, when we started, I think you're exactly, we used to go into the city council and people wouldn't even have the concept of sort of reducing mass incarceration or, or trying to do our part to um, end mass incarceration. That wasn't something that the city council was concerned with. Um, it wasn't something that the nonprofits that we talked to, and, and you're very right, we ran up against a lot of nonprofits. Not only were we um, in large part formerly incarcerated people organizing this, there was also trans and queer community who were in leadership in this, and, um, and, and immigrant community that were undocumented and unafraid. And all of those sort of what I think we think of as kind of most marginalized um, you know, there's a lot of nonprofits that didn't want to come near that. There were a lot of organizations that generally believed in, you know, some social change that we needed, but um, that was just too risky for them. Um, and there are council members who I think actually agreed with a lot of what we were saying and yet wouldn't come and support um, for those exact, you know, exact reasons. And um, I think it's kind of amazing how we've pushed forward. And then I think it's amazing how in the last few months, the, the, the world has exploded in this conversation around the truth of where policing comes from in this country and what jails actually represent. And this idea of even in common conversation that people are saying abolition, um, that people are saying we need to think about defunding or decreasing our police departments. And Ms. Marilyn and I joked because we spent a little time, we felt terrible, but we spent a little time wanting to say, told you so, you know, to so, to so many <laughs> we, we don't mean that in a big ego way, but there was just a moment where all these things we had been saying to people, do you see that the issues are connected? Yes, we're talking about the jail, but we are also talking about police violence because mm -hmm. the more police contact you have on the street, the more you increase your chance of something like that happening. Um, the train your police as a militarized force, but then send them out to handle social issues like homelessness and mental illness. Mm -hmm. That is what starts to distort. It actually decreases equity. It makes our communities less safe. Um, mm -hmm. And we've been saying that. And um, so our, our kind of way we've seen it is, you know, there were a lot of organizations and people who were not really on board. We are getting a lot of calls um, and a lot of reach outs now from organizations who see this issue and know we've been working on it. Um, 
You know, and I just want to lift up at the same time, there were some that, that took the risk and joined our alliance. And yeah. I think our alliance is 50 organizations large um, because there were those willing to take the risk. Um, and I'll say at the same time, and we still currently have city council members who I would say are still not ready to take that yeah. risk. And they still yeah. feel that these issues or supporting formerly incarcerated people as they would see is, um, is politically not in their interest. Um, mm -hmm. There are still people who feel like elections are not made in, on criminal justice reform, um, but on, you know, in fact, pointing the finger and talking about crime rates. And um, so we still have a ways to go, even with yep. the progress. Um, a question for both of you that I'm interested in is around language. I'm a big believer that language matters, and it's why I often do completely crazed, unhinged threads on Twitter about how some journalist has framed something the wrong way, and the words they're using, I think, are not the right words, which makes me sound like a crazy person, but I think I'm right. Um, talk to me about how you thought about the language and how that supported your strategies, both within community and also in the broader messaging outside of those communities that you needed on board. Marilyn, why don't you start and then Sochi, I'll have you jump in. Okay, great. So uh, the language, it's like, um, I wanna, I guess, talk about when I first started um, doing this work, I didn't understand the language of a person that, um, uh, that was not, I guess, I guess that I didn't understand the language of a person that were more educated, like um, college professors or whatever. They talk about criminal justice in another type way, whereas a person that is not educated or formerly incarcerated, some of us d did not understand. So by um, us by myself being formerly incarcerated, I was able to reach out to that community and talk and 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 give them an understanding of what some things meant that they didn't know what it meant. And if they didn't know what it meant by them being formerly incarcerated, they was hesitant about being involved or being a part of. And then on the other hand, there were I learned to understand the language around legislation and all the things, the other part of the language. So it's not just one language, it's two or three different languages uh, for different communities. So those are, uh, I mean, that that's where um, the language, you got to put the language in the right community mm -hmm. to make a long story so short. Interesting, right? L lived experience yeah. as expertise. You're an expert. Yeah. You don't have a PhD or eight yeah. of them after your name, but you yeah. have more lived experience and other right. people in this issue and that has tremendous value. And then also, how do you navigate those words that are gonna resonate within community for different yes. communities? Cause not everybody is moved by the same thing. That's so, so fascinating. Yeah. So weigh in for me on that. Yeah, that's, that's I mean, that is such a beautiful, um, way of putting it. And I think, um, you know, I think we also did see with some of what, I don't think you're crazy at all. We get, we go, we see news coverage of our issues and, you know, rankle in for a long time, the use of the word, right, convict, criminal, um, all of the, 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 the pejorative and stereotype words that describe people who've been formerly incarcerated, who've been, you know, and, and that division, the false division between a formerly incarcerated person and victims of crime, as if our communities actually aren't 
totally overlapping one and the same in that many, many people who go to prison and jail have been survivors of crime themselves. Um, so, I mean, we see that all the time and we worked really hard to stay away from some of that language that even when an article is saying the right things about the subject matter, but you are demeaning the people inside, you are dehumanizing people. And that is what makes it easier. What we used to say at city council is there's 700 people every night sleeping behind bars in these one, these tiny little cells and almost all of them in isolation cells, which is known to be a form of torture. Um, and people can just keep living their lives and not pay attention to that, particularly if you dehumanize them, if you call them. And, you know, while, while we did feel the need in this campaign, like Ms. Marilyn was saying earlier, to point out that this extra jail, we are talking about city ordinance violations and traffic violations because that's so absurd, but we also don't want to dehumanize the people sitting at the Fulton County Jail because there are people there who have been accused of misdemeanors and felonies. and. Um, and, and the question remains, like Ms. Marilyn said, the question remains, do they, is that going to actually increase safety in our communities? So, um, so I just, I feel like we worked, we worked really hard to highlight what's particular about this jail without making sure we're not throwing anybody else under the bus. And, um, and we see, ooh, we see news coverage all the time that kind of misses um, misses the boat on the realities of our communities and, and tries to turn us all into, you know, monolithic, um, you know, just, it, it just doesn't, news isn't, as you know, isn't always designed to capture the complexity and this story is complex. So we fought for a long time to get some of the local press in particular to yeah. cover the, the story for what the story is. Thank you for making me feel like I'm not crazy because I, I think oh, you're right. Yeah. I think like nuance and complexity and and who's an expert and who who's whose point of view gets elevated. I I'm I'm always so frustrated that you end up having often yelling yell legislators, but not the actual people whose conversations are centered. Final question for you guys before we run out of time. What's next? Um I, I was surprised to hear that the jail isn't closed because I was one of those who thought it's done. It's a done deal. It's been announced. There are headlines in the paper. Marilyn, why don't you start? Uh, for next steps, and then Sochi, I'll have you wrap up with what you think are the next steps, and then even beyond this this um, detention center. Okay. So the next steps is uh, we are working to diligently get it closed before the end of the year, and start start the repurposing, the demolition to repurpose on the uh, with the facility, and moving beyond that. Uh, Women on the Rise is an organization that is led by formerly incarcerated women of color that are doing work that has never been replicated nowhere in the U.S. I would like to have time to start trying to uh, replicate Women on the Rise in other states, make it a national organization instead of just the state, I mean, the city of Atlanta organization. Uh, it's one of the things I would like to do on my next on my list. Mm -hmm. uh, amongst closing another little jail that is holding women uh, in Union City. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. But I really, really want to see this jail closed before mm -hmm. we do anything else. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, like Ms. Merrill said, what's next is we are going to, I would be a bad organizer if I didn't say that, you know, anybody watching this, please call the mayor, call your city council member, oh, yeah. um, if you live out of city and, and say it's, it's time, um, as we say justice. Um, 
really demand that we have a date. Um, and uh, and so we're going to ensure um, that that close. And then I think there's a lot of work that goes into this vision for a replaced um, or repurposed center for wellness, equity, and freedom. Um, we want to make sure that there is community uh, investment, that it isn't, um, you know, sort of a an institution that that decides what's best for people. But how do you actually have community leadership, community ownership, um, in order to keep this sort of transformational, um, uh, you, you know, what we've begun as such a transformational campaign. So I think there's a lot that that looks there. And then I think we will turn our attention as well to um, to the policing that happens in the city of Atlanta, because the, the jail would obviously not have people in it for the police not arresting people for those things. So we need to repeal the ordinances um, that that um, that lead up to people being in the jail. And we also need to really re-envision our police department. It's gonna be the next step. And I think for the city of Atlanta to reckon with what its criminal justice system has been doing for the last 20, 30, 40 plus years um, and, and, and decide on a different path way forward for wellness and safety. Um, they're gonna have to take a look at the police department and what, what needs to be invested in instead um, here in the city. Sochi Bivita and also Marilyn Wynn, I thank you both for this great conversation. Really, really uh, helpful, both in understanding the issue, but also in understanding deconstructing the pathway to what is, I guess we'll call it on the cusp victory, but also on the cusp of being fully realized and actualized. Thank you so much for this conversation. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Soledad. This was wonderful. It's great. Thank you very much. Thank you so much.